0: O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also sing praise with the harp for your faithfulness, O God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O mighty or holy one of Israel. Those are verses 17 to 22 of Psalm 71, which along with Psalm 70 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, February the 3rd, 2021, 22, sorry. (laughs) Early in the year, it's hard for me to get that right. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are continuing our look at the uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, the 55th chapter, the first 13 verses today, in uh, the Epistle to Paul to the Church at Galatia, chapter 5, the first 15 verses, and then in Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. <coughs> so today, we're going to get into... The whole idea about who is Jesus and why does it matter. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story when we get there about a conversation that I had with somebody about oh two years ago almost now um, that that tells me they were listening to the wrong person <laughs> when they were listening to preachers. Um, so in the first lesson today in that Isaiah passage, it's one of my favorite passages, by the way, um, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come by and eat. And and that describes this exile community that he's been speaking to and trying to encourage, but it, because they, they can't receive the encouragement. And if you've ever been in that down, down, down place, you can't receive encouragement. You can't see the good things that are actually going on in your life and the way that, that God's working in your life, because you're so consumed by the, the sense of loss that you have in all these other things. And so it becomes harder to see God working in our lives. But it's the place, I think, where we learn to start seeing that God's work in our lives, so that we can have more and more to praise Him for as we go forward. He beginning to awaken his people to hope and vision for what will be. And he here he bids them come. Those who don't have what it takes to to get things, they're there readily available and free. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy and too often that describes us we we spend all of our time uh, on the things that are under the sun rather than investing our lives in the life of the world to come investing ourselves in the kingdom of god when instead we get invested in the things of earth listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live what a great promise that is. God's telling us, beckoning us to come to him in order that we can receive so much better than we can get anywhere else. The things that are fulfilling and filling uh, to us, the things that um, that is that true bread, he says, come to me, and you can have those things. It won't cost you anything. I'll gladly give those to you. He says, here that your soul may live, and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so what was his covenant with David? That there would always be one to sit on the throne. And so we know that in Jesus, that covenant is gloriously and eternally fulfilled. And it was fulfilled from the point before David ever sat on the throne, because Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. And so that was always the way this was going to turn out. And so you kind of reverse engineer everything else that happens. It's not the way God works, but it's the way we would have to deal with it if we knew what the outcome was going to be. We would reverse engineer the process to get it there, believing that we had control over that process and that therefore it would turn out exactly the way we intended it. With God, it does, and it did, and it will. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And so what it sees is that there's going to be this expansion of the kingdom, this this uh, coming in of the nations into the fold because of the Lord and the work that he has done. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near for the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the lord that he may have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon it's the, the, one of the barriers that people have to coming back to the lord is they believe that their failure is final and that they believe that their sins are too much for god to actually overlook or forgive that that no if you just knew well i, I know this i know moses murdered somebody i know david murdered somebody about that? If I know those things, I know that Peter denied Jesus three times when he most needed him to affirm him, and all these people were forgiven, restored, and raised up in the kingdom as leaders in the kingdom, it's, but it's a barrier to us because we can't believe that God is actually that good and that gracious. Except for he tells us exactly that in, in uh, Exodus 34, when, when Moses wants to be hidden, wants to see God's glory, God shares it with him in words. He tells him that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, full of love and kindness. I mean, all these things, and yet we, we can know those things, but we can believe that, that our sins are too great for us to be able to come before him, and, and it's never true. Never, ever, ever. Satan wants you to believe that. He wants you to believe that you're so awful that there's no possibility that you can be forgiven. It's what people did. Like Joseph Kony in Uganda, um, this was about 20 years ago at least, um, started the Lord's Resistance Army there. And what he would do is they would kidnap children, and then they would have those children kill themselves kill others and and they would tell them well you nobody else in polite society would have you anymore because of what you've done so you you have to be bound to me and that's exactly the lie that satan tells us is that your stuff is worse than anybody else's stuff and you've failed at at a level that that disqualifies you permanently from participation in the kingdom and, and and you must just stay with me now and people give up he says but you know, he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts; neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And that's the problem with that mindset that I was just talking about: is that it believes that that other people can't um, forgive me for my sins. So, how in the world could God, who is holy, do that? And God says here, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. I'm not. You're not an analog for me. You're a fallen human being. Come. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thought. For as the rain and the snow will come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And and the word we know ultimately is Jesus. And so we know that he succeeded in the purpose for which he was sent. God's purposes are always fulfilled, whether it's through willing participants or unwilling participants. God's will will be done. (laughs) For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So there's this promise of, of blessedness coming from God, that that the things that are now cursed will be blessed. And so that there's nothing that won't be changed, is his promise. And, and the question then is, do we believe that promise? Are we willing to run hard after that promise, but, we're, but what we need to be doing is running hard after him, the one who makes the promise and fulfills the promise. The, the promise can never be, never be greater in our eyes than the one who makes it or fulfills it. In the gospel, remember yesterday we had a problem in three different ways of people not seeing. They saw but they didn't perceive, they didn't understand, they, they couldn't believe. There was a barrier to belief, and that barrier is, is that the way things always have been is the way things always will be. And so they didn't see that the new thing was springing up, and they were not perceiving that new thing. They perceived it at some level, but not completely. So now they've left Bethsaida, and, and they're going through the villages of uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is a pagan area. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, there's a place there where there are these niches to all these gods. And so you've got to sort out, okay, which of these gods here matters, and and what are they really? And so Jesus is standing there among those niches asking, where do I fit? How do you all understand me? And they they told him what other people said, and that was John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And we talked about this about a week ago, that that's the way that that Herod saw him. Hey, who is this Jesus that I'm suddenly hearing about? And he comes to the conclusion that it's the spirit of John the Baptist raised from the dead. And he concludes that based on his own recognition of his own sin and having John put to death. And so he thinks that God's sending a specter after him the specter of john the baptist who he's put to death then others say elijah the one who come and, and do uh, miracles and things like that but to prepare the way for the messiah and then others say that he's the spirit of one of the prophets <clears throat> and he asked then who do you say that i am peter answered you're the christ The Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one who has come here to redeem us, the one who who will take on the throne of David, is what he's saying. And he, he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is taking the word of God aside to say, you don't understand That's his belief, is that Jesus doesn't understand the words of Scripture, that he doesn't understand there's no dying Messiah, certainly not a crucified Messiah, anywhere in the Scriptures. And it's funny because as I go through stuff that I watch on YouTube on a regular basis, I watch a lot of uh, rabbinic teaching and other things. Um, but as I go through that, I, I keep getting one thing suggested to me all the time, and that's an, on a Jewish channel, and it says there's there's nothing like a crucified Messiah in Scripture, and that's exactly what Peter's saying. And and what I would say, and what Jesus says is, y- you don't have your eyes right yet. You're, you don't have your spiritual eyes right, so that you're missing a truth that's there. And so that—he— he re- Peter rebuked him, but Jesus turned and saw his disciples. He rebuked Peter because it has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with in, in the form of a rebuke. It can't just be something he whispers to Peter because they're seeing this. They're seeing J- Peter stepping way out of line <laughs> and, and rebuking Jesus, and so Jesus has to publicly rebuke him because the sin is public. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why would he say that? Well, it's because Peter wants to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth without the crucifixion in the same way that Satan wanted to offer him the kingdoms of the earth if he'd only bow down and worship him. And and by, by sinning, by failing to persevere in the mission that he'd been given, Jesus would have indeed fallen down to worship Satan, because he he has to worship the Father, which means he has to do everything the Father says, because life is an act of worship. And so he looks to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, I've heard this before. He's speaking through you at this point. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You'd rather be a servant to a king, you'd rather be at my right hand, than you would to see the things of God and what he's doing in the world. And then he called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And as I've said before, that, that saying to us makes perfect sense because we know that Jesus actually does take up a cross, and he's resurrected on the third day in the fulfillment of the words that he has just spoken here. But they didn't know that. It's just a creepy, creepy image to them that he would even say this. You've got to deny yourself and take up a cross and follow me? for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. At this point, you'd have to ask the question, what is the Gospel? How do they understand the Gospel? What would they believe that it is? Because they've already misunderstood what it means that Jesus is the Christ. So what is the Gospel? And so that's still an unfolding proposition. They just have a portion of the truth at this point. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you had everything, what would be the benefit of that if you forfeited your soul? Which is exactly the question that Solomon's asking over in Ecclesiastes. I, I've had all these things, and what I've found is ultimately they're meaningless. They're vanity, and that nothing more. And that's exactly what Jesus says. What can a man give in return for his soul? There's nothing you can do, once you've forfeited it, there's nothing you can do to get it back. You should treat it as the most precious thing you've ever been given, this eternal soul inside. For whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Well, I don't want to be in that group. I don't want to be in the group that he's ashamed of and won't have anything to do with. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, and that would be after the day of Pentecost. They begin to see the establishment and the the coming and the establishment of the kingdom of God, And, and their job then is the same as he gave them when he sent them out on the mission, and that is to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. And so the power of God through the disciples, through Jesus, is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. It's the overthrowing the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin and death, and the kingdom of God breaks in. And so the power of God is what authenticates the, the message, that, that it, there's going to be accompanied by a sign or signs that will show you what it actually looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And so we should expect and pray expectantly for him to do things like healings and other miracles. And then we should thank him and praise him for those things. We should shout those things from the highest rooftops. We should tell everybody we know what it is that God has done because he, he longs to be with us. But he needs to be the one who gets the glory because he's eternal, and it's in him, the one who is eternal, that people should put their trust. So it's not a selfish-seeking kind of need to be glorified. No, the only way that you can be glorified is by glorying in him. And so that, the, that's the point, it, it's, is that he wants glory so that you can have life, And then in the epistle, Paul says, remember yesterday's argument had to do with um, whether we are free or slaves. And slavery, he says, is the covenant that, that includes the law, and Jesus has set us free from that. And so you, you've been born again into this new covenant. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And, and I, I'd say that, that in our world that we've been in, we have been willing to give up a lot of freedom. And for what? At the end of the day, um, the science changed about a thousand different times. And so we've made all these adjustments to our lives exactly the way they told us to do. And in doing so, we, we mostly lost freedom in all of this. And, and that's exactly what Paul's saying. If you go back to the law, and if you submit yourselves to the, to the law, then, then you have submitted yourselves to a slavery that won't get you anything at the end of the day, other than back where we started, which is the need for grace. Look, he says, <laughs> I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You will have forfeited your slavery, your, your freedom, and your salvation if you accept circumcision, because you've already been bought at a price, and the price was the cost of Jesus's life, and so you've already been redeemed from the law, which only gives sin and death, and so if you accept circumcision, then you reject Christ's sacrifice, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, every bit of it, the ceremonial part of it, the ritual part of it, the the, um, other pieces of it as well. Not just the moral law, he says, but all of it. And you can't do that without sacrificing Jesus You have to give him over because now you're going to trust in in the sacrificial system. So when you accept the law, you've accepted the fact that you're going to fail and that you have to keep making sacrifices when Jesus has made the only sacrifice that's there. So you can't go back to the law without rejecting Jesus's sacrifice. He says, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Because the grace and the law are are opposed to one another, but they're they're together in Jesus. That's his glory is that he can merge those things. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In our own lives, we're pursuing righteousness in Christ, but we know that that's going to be imperfectly uh, held in our bodies in this life. But we're longing for that. It's what we want is to be righteous like Christ is righteous. In the, in the short term, we accept his righteousness as the sacrifice for our sins because we have sinned, but ultimately what we want is to be like him, and we should be pursuing it in this life and longing for it in the life to come. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So neither of those things actually matter, whether you're circumcised or not, if you're in Christ. But if you took on circumcision, then you've taken on the law, and you needed to be set free from that, not take it on. He said, you were running well. You were doing great. Everything was fine when I saw you last. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you so it's not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I mean, you know, you've got to get rid of the leaven that's come in there. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to drive it out of your midst, or it's going to mess up everything, because everything's going to become like that. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is, I don't know if Paul really knew who it was or whether he didn't know who it was, but he knew what the problem was, and he knew what it was that was troubling their spirits. They had convinced them that Jesus wasn't enough, that they had to do all these other things as well. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? If he said, if I was preaching that stuff, he said, nobody would bother me. They would leave me alone. But because I preach against it, they come after me, so don't let anybody tell you that I'm preaching circumcision. <clears throat> In that case, the offense of the cross had been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, he's saying that, that I wish they wouldn't just do the circumcision, the removal of the foreskin. I wish they'd cut the whole thing off. I, I wish that's what they would do. I mean, Paul, you, you think Paul's a little bit perturbed with these people? Uh-uh. No, he's a lot perturbed with these people. He's got no use for them. because they're they're causing a problem, and they're leading people astray. They're leading people away from the gospel, and he could say to them exactly what Jesus says to Peter here, and that is, get behind me, Satan. That's a message from the pit of hell, because what that message is encouraging you to do is to believe that Jesus is not sufficient, that you've got to take on this other stuff. He said, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't, don't make the opposite mistake and believe, well, I've been set free from all those things, the penalty and everything else. I've been given eternal life. I can do anything I like. You know, that's the opposite of legalism, right, is this, this misunderstanding of the freedom that we've been given through Christ. We've been given the freedom to pursue righteousness without the fear of, of death. We we can we've been set free from that in order to pursue righteousness. We can pursue it in a different way. We can perceive it we, we can pursue it with joy rather than fear of punishment. So he so he says, Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So don't start down that road of sniping at one another because ultimately that leads he says to destruction. And so here he he is very very clear that the way that we for, we we fulfill the law the way that we we do it is in one word he says and that is love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus tells the disciples on the night prior to his crucifixion that's exactly what they're supposed to do is to serve one another to love one another as he has loved them. That shows the way of Christ and leads to the holiness that we're after.